0: So this morning, I, I want to reflect on this third way of establishing mindfulness, which in Pali is citta, uh, translated as mind. Um, but in the context of the Sadipatthana Sutta, uh, citta is used in a very specific way, really to contemplate states of mind or moods, uh, rather than contents or thoughts or narratives or images. And the Buddha was quite passionate about understanding the architecture of distress, knowing that distress is something that comes, it goes, we have moments of distress, moments of non-distress. So really understanding how do we get into those places? And it was very clear that if we're going to understand the architecture of distress, then it's also important for us to understand the architecture of our personal world of experience. How our personal world of experience is being shaped and formed and impacted on a moment-to-moment level. This world, my personal world as I know it. And he appreciated, of course, one of the Powerful shaping factors of our world of experience is chitta, is mind. It would go on to say, mind is the forerunner of all things. Speak or act with an unclear mind and sorrow will follow you like a shadow. Speak or act with a clear mind. And we come to know the end of sorrow. So we come to this this word chitta. Now, if you take a moment just to to check in inwardly right now, what is your mood just now? What is your state of mind just now? Does it feel dull or bright? Does it feel contracted or spacious? Does it feel busy or calm? a sense of of knowing that of noticing what the mood of the moment is knowing that in in every moment of experience of course there is a state of mind a climate of mind there is a mood and they they tend to pass through consciousness something like weather patterns some make very brief visits You know, we have we have a a mood of irritation or, you know, a a mood of spaciousness and it passes away. And of course, some moods, some mind states stay much longer that through repetition or through the feeding of them, they become very familiar visitors of low mood or contracted mood or agitated mood. Now, there are many, many lovely moods. There are many, many lovely mind states. In fact, in practice, we give considerable amount of our attention to developing lovely states of mind, of spaciousness, of joyfulness, of calmness, of uh, openness, of sensitivity, of appreciation. And of course, there are many, many difficult states of mind. Some of them are really found within those five veiling factors I mentioned yesterday of craving, of ill will, of restlessness, of dullness, and of doubt. It's interesting that those five veiling factors really span or bridge both the third and the fourth ways of establishing mindfulness. We can experience them as moods. And in the fourth way of establishing mindfulness, we see that when a mood is frequently repeated, it actually becomes a pattern. It becomes a psychological habit. Hmm? So it, the, these five veiling factors in you know, it, they are not the only difficult moods we experience. Anxiety, fear, depression, you know, many, many of the difficult moods that we experience, you know, have, have often been with us for a long time. They have a long history. Now, whether lovely or unlovely, Of course, the shape of our mind really does have a profound effect in shaping our world. You know, if my eyes are tired or if my mood feels tired, the world looks tired. You know, if my mind feels anxious, worried, the world of experience that I live in is one where I perceive threat, invasion, irritation. Um, If my mind is, is spacious, I see the world in an entirely different way. So our moods are something akin to the sort of lens through which we see both inwardly and outwardly. And of course, shaping our speech, our thoughts, our choices, our actions, our sense of possibility, or our sense of impossibility. Much of this, if we trace it back, comes back to the mood of the moment. Very often, if a mood of the moment has become a pattern, an emotional pattern or a psychological pattern, it also becomes a self-definition. You know, I'm a very anxious person. You know, I'm a very irritable person. You know, I'm a very agitated person. We start to describe ourselves by the mood of the moment. So, this is a domain of our experience which is so important to contemplate, you know. And I will often encourage people, you know, just at the beginning of a sitting, just check in. What is your mood of the moment? Because that's likely to profoundly impact how that sitting unfolds. You know, if the mood is very, very uh, uh, hesitant or agitated, you know, you might not even continue with the sitting. You know, you might find yourself suddenly getting up or or leaving. So really sensing into this territory of the moods at the end of a sitting. Take a moment to check in. What is the mood of the moment? And we might bring that inquiry, not in a, you know, not in an overdoing kind of way, but we might bring that inquiry into all the transitions of our day. When we begin something, when we end something. Ah, what is the mood of the moment? Um, it's it's quite important not to to bring a sort of um, judgmental assessment because this is not about good moods or about bad moods. This is about understanding what are the moods or the mind states that contribute to distress and perpetuate distress, and which are the moods or the mind states which contribute to the end of distress, to calming the distress levels in our lives. So we perceive the world through the lens of our moods, we interpret the world through the lens of our moods, and we react to the world through the lens of our moods. And this is, of course, something that is so woven into MBCT teaching to to actually begin to see how our world is actually being interpreted and reacted to, the unreturned smile. Perceived through the mood of, of low mood, you know, that becomes a personal indictment. It says something about us. Perceived through the mood of steadiness or balance, the unreturned smile really just have has a totally different impact. It's simply an unreturned smile. One of the refrains that you come across in the Satipatthana over and over again is to know as it is. To know the body as the body. To know feeling tone as feeling tone. To know a mood as a mood. That's simple. To know it as it is. Now, It's really helpful, I think, to begin to see how different mind states impact upon narrative production. You will probably notice when there's a difficult mind state, a worried mind state or an angry mind state, that proliferation of thought is in overdrive we're trying to explain the mood we're trying to explain our world we're getting busy with how to fix things so the proliferation of thought tends to go up in volume according to how difficult or easeful the mood is when the mood is you know when you have a mood that's particularly spacious or calm you know you don't sit there speculating why am i calm you know, why am I spacious? You know, where did this come from? I shouldn't be feeling spacious. You know, I'm not a calm person. You just don't get that level of narrative, do you? But the difficult moods are far more productive in the amount of stories and thoughts that they produce. And of course, the thoughts that are produced take on the flavor of the mood. You know, if you find that the mood is, is one of, of aversion or contractedness, you know, you don't have a lot of thoughts of generosity in that, do you? Or kindness. So the thoughts are taking on the flavor of the mood. And they tend to, of course, feed back into the mood. I remember teaching years ago at Gaia House, and someone spoke to me about how they'd spent their morning kind of Uh, totally busy you know prowling around the house you know reading the 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 tea packets you know and you know reading every notice on the notice board and you know very busy with you know checking out other people's walking styles and and at the at the end they told me they found themselves reading the instructions on the fire extinguisher now you are really desperate on retreat when you find yourself reading the instructions on the fire extinguisher and the first instruction on the fire extinguisher, apparently this is quite universal, it says, aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. And, and, and she said to me, this was such a sort of wake-up moment. Aim the nozzle at the base of the fire. Instead of trying to sort of control the busyness or, you know, beat the thought, thoughts into submission, ah, this is where we're aiming mindfulness, at the base of the fire, the mood. It's helpful to notice this, you know, because our the thoughts and our moods are, are just terribly convincing, aren't they? Have you ever tried to talk somebody out of anxiety? It doesn't work, does it? Have you ever tried to talk somebody out of aversion? Oh, you know, life is really not that bad. You know, there's lots of lovely things. No, there isn't. You know, everything is miserable. Everyone is miserable. You cannot talk yourself out of a mood. Um, It is a question of of coming, settling down, you know, because that convincing nature, of course, really dictates our thoughts and our reactions. There's a wonderful quote. It says, most people believe their mind is something akin to a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting the world as it is not understanding that the mind is the principal architect of that world. So we learn to actually develop this way of of noticing, being mindful of the moods of the moment. Now, what we see is we, we get these closed feedback loops, don't we? That a mood will produce a lot of thinking, a lot of proliferation, a lot of narrative that proliferation will turn backwards to feed and to strengthen that mood. And as the mood or the mindset state strengthens, of course, the narrative generation is fueled and becomes stronger. And these are these kind of loops that probably we've all found ourselves in at times. I'm sure with your clients, your patients, you find people locked into these closed feedback loops of moods generating thought. Thoughts feeding in in more power. And as that closed feedback loop continues, of course, something else quite insidious, of course, gets added in to that closed feedback loop, which is actually the shaping of the sense of who I am in that moment. The identification, the selfing, uh, being shaped by that repetition of those loops, I am angry. You know, I am so worried. You know, I am so anxious. And we know what it feels like to be locked in a mind that simply doesn't stop. You know, or is quite uncooperative with our deepest intentions and aspirations. When it seems like there's no way out of these loops and the imprisonment of those loops. There's a certain formula, I think, that you find within the early teachings. I often think of the Buddha as being a kind of map maker. He, would, he drew out these maps of consciousness that I think we can easily trace in our own experience. And personally, I, I find that quite helpful. It's a simple formula that says what we, where there is contact, there is feeling what we feel, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate about. What we proliferate about, we dwell upon. And what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. And the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. So what we contact, where there's contact, there's feeling. Of course, our sense doors are open. So there is always contact, the meeting of the sensor with the sensory impression. Sound, the tongue meets a taste, and of course the mind, as a sensor, has these sensory impressions of thoughts or images or memories. Again, as Chris was speaking about yesterday, all of that has a feeling tone, of being pleasant or unpleasant. Or neither. What we feel, we think about. You know, what is this? What's going on here? You know, how do I know this? What do I think about this sight or this sound? Or what is this thought? What we think about, we proliferate about. The thoughts begin to to really flower and grow. And what we think about, we dwell upon. This is this is a process of identifying, of clean. So what do we do in this territory? Um, there's a lot of things that we do in this territory. First of all, I think the first step is to develop again a kind of emotional literacy, a knowing, a knowing of sadness as sadness, of aversion as aversion, as a contractedness as contractedness. Knowing spaciousness as spaciousness, calmness as calmness. Then I think it's really helpful to uh, bring in the discerning element. And I know it's it's so important, I think, in this to, to really notice the difference between what is judgment and what is discernment. Because discernment is such a key factor in Buddhist psychology, this ability to discern what is helpful and to discern what is unhelpful, to discern what is skillful and to discern what is unskillful. Discernment in in Buddhist psychology is the bridge between mindfulness and response, between mindfulness and the kind of effort that we bring into the moment it's a necessary quality it is actually what rescues mindfulness from passivity it's what rescues mindfulness from being a mode of just watching or just observing or just paying attention this discerning quality is so so deeply important because that is how we know what do we cultivate and what do we not cultivate what do we feed and what do we fast? What do we develop? And what do we not develop? It actually allows this level of engagement with our inner world of experience that actually sets us on a path, a path that has, it does indeed have a sense of direction. It's not about, uh, you know, just staying still and watching forever. You know, we could do a lot of observing without necessarily that being a transformative process. We could just become good observers. So discerning what is helpful and what is unhelpful. We learn to pick up the clues of moods. learn to pick up the clues of mind states. The clues might be in the body, You know, if you sit and you suddenly find your your shoulders are up around your ears or your your, your belly is contracting or you find yourself suddenly agitated in the body or moving or, you know, it's a clue. What is the mind state just now? The clues might be in the the sort of, of continuity of certain emotional themes in our thinking. You know, if I find myself, you know, thinking in streams of aversion or streams of wanting or streams of worry, you know, ah, there's a clue in that. What is the mind state underneath it? The clues are sometimes very behavioral. You know, when we find ourselves repeating behaviors that are unhelpful, you know, there's a clue that there is a mind state there. Then we actually begin to question, what is sustaining the mind state? There, there is no mood, there's no mind state that has an independent self-existence. Mind states rely for for to be sustained, they actually need to be fed. Now what is the best way of feeding a difficult mind state? It is the dwelling the proliferation, the throwing the logs on the fire, just as mind states by how we feed them. If particularly difficult mind states, if they are not fed in an unhelpful way, they will be like a weather pattern that arises and that passes and that moves through. We also learn to feed helpful mind states you know it's certainly to come out of any idea that all mind states are difficult we're learning to feed helpful mind states you know if there's a state of mind a mood of spaciousness it's really helpful to explore that ah how do i know this in the body how do i know this in consciousness ah what's the taste of this You know, so you're actually developing and cultivating through giving attention to the moods that are helpful. As we explore these foundations or these ways of establishing mindfulness, it's so important to to keep acknowledging that these are always interactive processes. You know, moods register in the body. Sometimes what is happening in the body generates a mood. feeling tones the pleasant and the unpleasant are always happening and they're often the sparks of pleasantness or unpleasantness Mm -hmm. that is the beginning of a mood taking shape a mind state taking shape these are always present in our experience you know a mood will actually generate Vedana won't it you know if there's a mood of of aversion, it will see, it will generate feeling tones of unpleasantness which in turn can impact upon the body. so it's beginning to probe into this world of experience to to see how it is being shaped to allow the moods truly to be like weather patterns that arise and that pass and that move through that we learn what it's really helpful to cultivate and actually what it is not helpful to cultivate. Then this truly is a, a practice for our lives. This is not just a practice for our cushion, <clears throat> because our moods and our mind states are certainly not limited to what happens on our in our sitting posture or our walking practice. It's really to begin to to begin to have some familiarity and some knowing with this world of our moods and what we consent to, what we give authority to, and what we don't consent to. You know, and this is something I think that Chris and I will, will pick up in the talk this evening, this this capacity to be a wise gatekeeper. This real capacity to be a wise gatekeeper of our own hearts and our own minds. To know what it is helpful to welcome and what it's not so helpful to welcome. And not inviting a mood in doesn't mean to judge it or to suppress it or to deny it. It's actually simply knowing this is not helpful to feed. This is not helpful to feed. It's like if you're you having a, a dinner party in your home and a, an unwelcome visitor arrives, you know, it's, it's wonderful to offer them a glass of water and to say goodbye. If you offer them a five course meal, they are certainly going to return. It's simply knowing that, what what is being invited in and what is actually not being invited in. Okay, perhaps we could take some time now to sit. Establishing a posture of softness and alertness. A posture of an embodied intentionality. The intention to be present. The intention to be awake. The intention of kindness. Of listening inwardly. Sensing into the life of the body just now, however it is. The spectrum of sensations, the fluidity of the body. Sensing that which is pleasant and that which is unpleasant, coexisting, allowing, In the body feeling, the body listening, whatever sounds are present, pleasant, the unpleasant, the absence of sound. quietude. Sensing the body, breathing. Noticing whether the breath is shallow or deep. How your belly, how your chest responds to each in-breath, each out-breath. Aware of the feeling tone of breathing. It's pleasant or unpleasant or neither. Turning your attention to the mind of the moment, the process of minding. This is aware of whatever thoughts, whatever images are passing through. <clears throat> Sensing them arising and passing not holding anywhere. Sensing within the thoughts, the images. Feeling tone, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. Neither. sensing into the mood of the moment, the climate of mind, the state of mind. Is the mind affected by agitation, by aversion, by contractedness? Is the mind affected? By calm, by easefulness, by stillness. sensing whether the mood of the moment is impacting upon the body, is shaping the thoughts, and in the midst of whatever mood is present, establishing mindfulness, an affectionate curiosity. Again, returning to the body, however the body is just now, cultivating that sense of groundedness, of earthing, the language in in the Satipatthana Sutta that speaks about mindfulness of mind to be quite helpful. Because in it, the Buddha really uh, is presenting mind not as a thing, but as a process, an ongoing process that is being shaped, that is taking different forms moment to moment. And the language in the discourse is very specific. It says, noticing the mind that is affected by calm, noticing the mind that is affected by ill will, aware of the mind that is affected by spaciousness, aware of the mind that is affected by contractedness. So it's really putting us into this process mode of something being shaped, a process is being shaped moment to moment. And how that shaping happens is a process that we do indeed have choices within about what is cultivated and what is not cultivated, about what is fed and what is fasted. Okay, so Chris, do you have anything you'd like to add at this moment?
1: I think perhaps only just an encouragement to take this awareness of uh, mental states uh, into the walking practice, um, which naturally has opportunities for pausing and checking in with the mood or the mental state. You know, if, if we're using a walking path and I think that's our encouragement on this retreat to have a path uh, that is 10 to 12, um, paces long, just the, the standing at one end of, a, of the path. Great opportunity just to inquire, okay, what is the state of Chitta at this moment? What's the coloring? It's the coloring. And it's, it's like the first step of the breathing space for those of you who know that. It's just, okay, what's the coloring of mind in this moment? We may find that we've walked our path 10 paces and when we get to the other end and if we ask the same question, it's actually different in <laughs> just moments later, you know, what's the colouring? So just using the, the walking part, the walking practice as a way of um, kind of having opportunities to check in with the mental state. And of course, as we walk, if we notice that there's a lot of turbulence, a lot of restlessness, in the mind or that the, the mind feels very kind of foggy in a certain way, pausing halfway or part way, using that as a chance to uh, check in and maybe as Christina is saying, kind of apply some uh, shaping through grounding or through spacious allowing or through sensing, okay, alongside this mood of agitation, or this men- mental colouring of agitation, what's enjoyable here? Maybe I can enjoy the sense of space, or enjoy the, the sense of commitment to practice. So um, really, the walking practice, I think, is a very, very good and helpful um, arena for cultivating just what Christine has been describing in terms of mindfulness of mind, moment by moment. So, um,